0: Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michael's 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, and we are on week 23. I have entitled this week, What in the world is going on? So if you felt that way when you started doing the reading this week, just know you're in the right place. So this week we are reading out of the Daily Bible, pages 704 to 734, or the dates in the Daily Bible of June 4th through the 10th. Now let's review for just a minute. We read last week about the... Death of Solomon and the division of the kingdom. Just as God had judged Solomon in the life, in the reign of his son, uh, his son lost the ten tribes. They went off, they proclaimed Jeroboam to be their king, and Jeroboam went and then he disobeyed the Lord and set up alternative worship sites in the northern kingdom and perverted the worship actually of the God of Israel and introduced um, idolatry into it. So uh, this week now, we, we pick up and we begin now the story of over a 335-year period, the history of the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And I'll tell you, last week, We thought it was confusing having a King Jeroboam and a Rehoboam, and we were trying to figure out which was which. Just wait. This week, we began a period over 200 years of the history of the Northern Kingdom. They have some 20 kings, and during the 335 years of the Southern Kingdom, they also have about 20 kings. So getting this straight as we follow the story simultaneously of the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom at the same time and jumping back and back, back and forth, it is really confusing. The names are hard. The chronology is very difficult to figuring out where we are in the story. But I do want to say this, that we're moving into a period of history that's closer to the modern age. And so there's much more archeological evidence that is being uncovered that actually supports the stories here of the Kingdom of Israel and the Kingdom of Judah. Um, In the earlier time periods, archeological evidence was scant only because there wasn't that much of it. But in this period of history, we're in what's known as the Iron Age, and there's just a lot more there being uncovered that's proving this story. Now, um, in this week's story, we are following these two kingdoms. And what I want to do before we get into any of the stories is back up and take a little bit of a 30,000 foot view. And in a way, that's what the book of 1st and 2nd Kings does anyway. It doesn't go into a lot of detail, and it's giving you that overall viewpoint of these various kings and where they were bad, where they were weak or whatever, if somebody did good, but they don't give you a whole lot of detail, and then it's augmented by uh, portions out of first and second chronicles, and first and second chronicles uh, is repeat some of what we have in kings. But it also elaborates some, but it's written from a priestly perspective. And so that means it's written from a perspective of Jerusalem, which is in Judea, the southern kingdom. And the priests are are much more concerned with what happened in the southern kingdom than that idolatrous northern kingdom, because the southern kingdom has the lineage of David. And so Chronicles gives us a lot more detail about what happened in the southern kingdom. So now we have our two kingdoms, and as I said, the we we began at around 930 BC, and so the the northern kingdom lasts for about 200 years. It falls in 722. During that time, they have nine different dynasties made up of about 20 kings, and so that means there was a lot of instability in the northern kingdom. They would have a a dynasty may have lasted for two, three, four generations, and then somebody would come along, assassinate everybody, kill them all, start a whole new dynasty. And then two, three generations later, the same thing would happen there. And so that leads to a lot of instability and um, a story that's kind of hard to follow. The southern kingdom, beginning at the same point, 930 BC, it lasts longer. It lasts until 586 BC when they fall to the Babylonians. During that time, the Southern Kingdom only has one dynasty. Guess which one it is? Yep, the king, the dynasty of King David. And so it lasts throughout the whole time, but there are generations, and so they have roughly about 20 different kings in that dynasty. There is one story of about six years where the dynasty is broken, but we'll get to that in the detail. Uh, All in all, it was only the dynasty of the kingdom of David. Why? Because God promised David that he would have an everlasting kingdom and he would always have a lamp burning there in the city of Jerusalem, and he was true to his word. And uh, until the dynasty, until the kingdom fell and the city was destroyed. So now, what are the lessons? I want to I talk first about what are the lessons that we can glean from all this history that we're going to go through. And first is the grace of God. You know, there's a lot of talk in America these days about the judgment of God. And I, I have to say, I believe America is really deserving of judgment. Uh, when I see what's happening in our country, in our society, in our government, in, you know, we're deserving of judgment. But God's judgment doesn't come overnight. That would make him a tit-for-tat kind of God, where you, you say one thing wrong, and so you're you're hit with something. And that's not the way it works. God takes his time. And so here we have, he gave the northern kingdom 200 years to get their act together. That's a lot of grace. And in the Southern Kingdom, they they did have ups and downs. They did have a couple of kings that really led them in the right direction and reform and worship of the one true God. But there were also kings in between that kept the idolatry alive. And yet God, in His grace, did not just judge overnight. He gave them ample opportunity to repent. Another thing he did is he provided prophets to speak into the nation and speak into the lives of the rulers, which was another form of his grace. So we have seen here in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings and Chronicles, a movement of prophets. and we didn't really have that before. You know, we had the prophet Moses, and he led his people. And then when his time was up, Joshua led them. I don't think Joshua was ever considered a prophet, but he led them as a leader. And then in the period of the judges, we had a couple of prophets. And at the end, we had the great prophet Samuel. And he led the kingdom, or he led the country from a tribal confederacy to a monarchy. And he chose the first and second kings. He was a great prophet. But now we see that there are prophets And we have a number of what we call writing prophets, and we have books by them in our Bible, and we're gonna be talking about uh, some of those. Um, But then we have these prophets. It's like they'd have, a, a king might have a couple hundred prophets that he'd call upon and they'd prophesy to him what he should do. And somehow they always prophesied in unison. And you have to understand, they were probably paid by the king to be the prophets for the court. So there was a little bit of an influence maybe there as to what they should tell the king. And somehow they'd all get together and they'd agreed on what they were going to say. But that's not the case with the uh, writing prophets and these national prophets that we are going to be talking about in the next several weeks. They went sometimes in opposition to the band of prophets and they spoke the truth uh, to the king. Um, another, another lesson that we're going to see in all of these stories is how that the real thing that brought down these kingdoms was when the king married pagan wives, and they did it all the time, and they did it continually. And these pagan women brought pagan worship not just into the kingdom, into the territory, but actually into the home of the king. It influenced the king. Before you know it, they are supporting the idolatry. And it is idolatry that brought down these kingdoms. God took idolatry very, very personally. They were no longer worshiping Him, the one that they had married in the wilderness, the one that loved them and had promised all these wonderful things to them. No, they were turning their back on him and kneeling to some other god, a false god, after all of that. So it is idolatry that brought down the kingdoms. So now let's take an overview of the northern kingdom, the story that we're going to be reading. As I said, there were nine different dynasties, a lot of instability, and uh, the highlight of the northern kingdom is in a couple of weeks when we get to Jeroboam II. Yes, not the Jeroboam first. God judges Jeroboam first; He and his whole house end up being killed. But later on, there is another Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, and um, he's really the highlight for the northern kingdom. Uh, The Northern Kingdom was larger than the Southern Kingdom. It had 10 tribes instead of two. It had more territory. Um, But it was also more vulnerable to outside attack. And why is that? Because it was bigger. It wasn't like secluded geographically. It had more wide open borders. And the international trade route went right through the Northern Kingdom. And so this means there were a lot of other countries, some bigger than the Northern Kingdom, going back and forth there in trade. It also meant that this highway was easily used by one of these larger empires who wanted to come in and just take over this little empire. So it made them very, very vulnerable. Um, They also, they needed alliances. You know, when we had the kingdom of David and Solomon, it was so big and so wealthy and so strong. But also, I want you to understand a concept. You know, the, uh, what we call it on the playground, the seesaw. So when one side of the seesaw goes up, the other one's down. And then when your side goes up, the other side has gone down. And this is what we're going to see in these kingdoms in this history. So during the kingdom of David and Solomon, they were very big and very strong. But it just so happens that Egypt and Mesopotamia were small or weaker. And that, in a way, allowed for the kingdom of Israel to become so big and so strong. At the same time, now we have this divided kingdom, and so it's weakening because they're divided, number one. Number two, they just don't have the strength of that united uh, monarchy, and it just so happens at the same time, we have Egypt getting a little bit stronger, and later on, we have Assyria getting stronger. And before you know it, the seesaw has tilted. They're big and strong, and therefore, our little Israel and Judah are getting weaker and weaker. And in a way, one plays off the other. They can't be big and strong when they have these large uh, neighbors around them that are bigger and stronger. So the kingdom of Israel and Judah needed alliances with the other countries around them. And for the northern kingdom, this was really a very, uh, it was a very weak point and made them very, very vulnerable. They needed Phoenicia on the north. Phoenicia was very wealthy. They were maritime traders. And uh, they needed Phoenicia and they needed Aram, which is um, in the area of Syria today. It would be in between Israel and where Assyria was Based or headquartered in the middle, there was the Arameans or Aram of Damascus. So they needed these alliances. So, how did they get them? They exchanged wives and they would marry the pagan wives of Phoenicia and of the Arameans and brought in these influences. Also, in the northern kingdom of Israel, something you don't You need to understand, because it's not going to just come out and say this, there were a lot of Canaanite pagans in the territory of the northern kingdom of Israel. So they were already worshiping the idols. It was all throughout the northern part, the northern kingdom. And this was another influence later on. Now looking at the southern kingdom of Judah... As I said, there was only one dynasty, so there was a lot more stability in the government in the southern kingdom. It was smaller, so it was more compact, and it was geographically protected. It was a little bit more secure. It was a little bit off that international trade route. Up in the hills, there were some geographic boundaries there that helped keep Judah protected. Um, Also in Judah, remember, was Jerusalem and the temple. And this means that the priests there in the temple and the house of David made sure that the worship of the God of Israel in the temple was the foremost worship, was the national God of Judah. Now, I will say there were times that idolatry became quite strong. And even from the very beginning, so we have Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north. Jeroboam goes and starts this idolatrous, perverted worship. And Rehoboam's down here. He's got the temple. He's got Jerusalem. But remember, Rehoboam's mother was a pagan wife of Solomon. And so where you know it, Rehoboam is keeping these cult centers alive and the worship uh, in his kingdom. And then after after him, he had pagan wives. So that means his son who ruled had a pagan mother. And it went on for several generations. And um, we have one story where the, the mother actually usurps the throne, and she tries to make the uh, worship of her god the main national god for Judah. And um, there was rebellion by the priests. They got her out of there and they rethroned the one person that remained from the house of David. But this just goes to show you that these pagan women were a real thorn in the side. Now, I want to talk about the geographic setting for our stories that we're going to be reading because this is going to help you also. Uh, So remember, Solomon's kingdom was very large and very wealthy. And he had all of these vassal states at the edge of his kingdom. And then he had alliances even beyond the vassal states. And what we see in our stories we're going to be reading is these vassal states uh, began to break off, and they began to usurp their freedom and their independence. So, um, but let's first, I want to take a big circle around the Solomonic kingdom and talk about what we have going on here. We have Egypt down in the south, and Egypt, as soon as you remember, Jeroboam had fled to Egypt for safety until Solomon died. And then Jeroboam came back, and sure enough, he was made king of the new northern kingdom. Well, when he went to Egypt, it was under uh, Shishak of Egypt. And as soon as Solomon died, Shishak knew about it. And what does he do? He comes up against the southern kingdom of Judah. And he actually comes uh, and does damage to Jerusalem. So that shows you Egypt was beginning to strengthen Thankfully, after Shishak, it weakened again, so we don't hear about Egypt for quite a while. Moving up the coast, we have the Philistine territory. Well, the Philistines never, ever regained their strength that they had before David. David really did um, defeat the Philistines, but there still was some Philistine presence there and some cities We read them, uh, about them again. Then farther up the the coast, we get above the kingdom of Israel, and we find Phoenicia. Phoenicia was along the coast, as I said, very wealthy. They were maritime traders. They had ships. They were known all throughout the Mediterranean area uh, for their trade. So they were a, a very important ally to have. Moving inland from Phoenicia, we have the Arameans of what is today Syria. The Arameans, sometimes they were weak, sometimes they were strong, sometimes their king was named Ben-Hadad, other times it was somebody else, and then it was Ben-Hadad again, and then it was somebody else, and then it was Ben-Hadad again, so we're not sure if that was a name or a title, but it can be a little confusing trying to follow that history. On the other side of the Arameans, we have Assyria. It was very weak. Uh, during Solomon, but we're going to see by the end of our period here, it has become a major, major empire. Let's come back now below Aram. We have the uh, we have Ammon, and uh, Ammon and Moab right below it. They were a part of Solomon's kingdom, but they now began to uh, shake loose. They are cousins of the Israelites. They are descendants of Lot, if you'll remember the story in Genesis. And um, so they're cousins, but yet they aren't really friendly all the time. And below them is Edom. And Edom are also cousins. They're the descendants of Esau. And they really do uh, the southern kingdom of Judah in. They really do some dirty things. And so this week we actually read or will read a whole prophecy, a whole book. The book of Obadiah is against the Edomites. So this is what we have going on around us. Okay, I hope that that helps give you a little bit of context as you're reading through the stories. I will say that if you get lost in the reading, don't worry about it. I got so lost at times. I literally had to go get a textbook off my shelf from when I was in college 40 years ago. And it's called The History of Israel, and it tells the story of the Old Testament as a history book. And I got it out, and I read this whole section of history out of that book, and it helped me so much. And I realized you don't have that aid. So uh, if you get confused, if you get a little lost, don't worry. I'm going to help you each week. Let's focus on the majors here. Let's take the lessons from what we have to learn on our very quick walk through the Bible and walk through 335 years of history in the next, I think, four weeks. So now we get to our story. Now that you know this background, you're going to understand a lot more about the story of Ahab and Jezebel. We all know about Jezebel. She's made her name infamous, right? Around the world, Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, which is a Phoenician city. So she was Phoenician, and her god, the god of Phoenicia, was a bale of Tyre. It was a specific type of bale, and this is something you need to know. There were many different bales. A bale, in a way, meant Lord, and there were different expressions of this. So her bale was uh, her god from Tyre, Phoenicia, and she brought it with her to marry Ahab in a political alliance between the house of Ahab and um, the house there of of Phoenicia. Now, um, so she brings with her um, this worship. Now, Ahab is uh, very wealthy, and he's a strong king. And he's even mentioned in the writings of one of the Assyrian kings, Shalmaneser III. He mentions him. And um, his palace was full of ivory, which is a real sign of wealth at the time. And um, which, by the way, I learned something this week. Can I share this with you? They keep talking about ivory. And in fact, the prophet Amos complains about the ivory palaces, all the ivory in the palace of the kingdom of the king of the north. And uh, where did this ivory come from? Well, I learned that at this time in history, there were elephants in Syria. Of course, today there are no elephants in Syria, but at that time there were still elephants and that's where they got a lot of this ivory and so his palace was full of it. So he marries Jezebel, and she brings this worship of Baal. And Ahab goes, and he Ahab's father had built a city called Samaria, and he made it the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Ahab now goes to the capital city of Samaria, where he has his palace full of ivory. And what does he do? He builds a temple to the Baal, of Tyre. Now, this means that he is making this Baal by all purposes, you know, the national God of the north. There were still the worship centers going on that Jeroboam set up in Dan and in Bethel, where it was a mixture of worship of the God of Israel and these calves, whatever they meant, and this Baal that may have been represented there. But he sets up in the capital city, the temple to the Baal that his wife worshipped, Jezebel. And um, so this is why in First Kings 21, it says that Ahab was the most evil king of the north. And Jezebel, we know, was just notoriously treacherous. And she went and killed all the prophets of the God of Israel. And she was feeding and supporting and paying 850 prophets. Uh, 450 of them were to Baal, and I think 400 of them were to the fertility goddess Ashtoreth. And um, so she was very evil. And uh, so what I want you to understand is at this point, the northern kingdom of Israel, don't think of it as being Jewish because it wasn't. It was such a mix. Of the Canaanite pagans that lived there, of the Israelites that had started worshiping all these false go- gods, excuse me, and there would only been a small core of those that still really worshipped the God of Israel, and I would say that even a lot of them over the years probably left and went down to the southern and lived in Judah where they had the temple there and pure worship purity of worship. So uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was in a very, very bad situation, and the people were, you know, thinking that they're of Israel, and they're of this heritage, and they've got these worship places in Dan and Bethel, but There's also all this worship of Baal and the king is worshiping Baal and his wife is bringing Baal. So the people were totally of two different opinions here in turn, total confusion on who they were to worship. And in this context, we have the story of the prophet Elijah. Now, the prophet Elijah goes to King Ahab, this powerful, wealthy, uh, evil king. And he tells him You're going to have drought for three years. I mean, he pronounced it. This was speaking from God himself, telling Ahab, you're going to have drought. Now, why is this significant? Baal was known as the weather god. It's Baal that's supposed to bring rain. So when Elijah announces and pronounces drought, and drought actually begins, Ahab is very mad at him because this is a total affront to Baal, and it's showing that Baal is impotent he's not bringing the rain that he is supposed to bring. So this is a real confrontation of Baal that Elijah does. Elijah knows what he's doing. So Elijah now he's in trouble Ahab wants to kill him he stays away for three years and you have these stories of him. he's staying out of the area and then at the end of the three years he knows it's time to go to Ahab and so um, he goes to him and he said he says, bring all the prophets to me. So he gathers all the prophets of Baal and of Ashtoreth, and he brings them there to the area called Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is a range of hills. You could call them mountains. Um, It's about a 30-mile-long range of mountains, and it bridges Phoenicia with Israel. So here in the mountains— of this Mount Carmel range, they're worshiping the Baal of Phoenicia. All makes perfect sense. And they always worshiped on these high places. Now, uh, some people say they didn't go up on the high place, They'd have the worship down below, but whatever, uh, these high places were very, very critical in the worship of these gods. So what does Elijah do? He tells the pagan prophets, you know, prepare your altar and everything, but do not light the fire. And then they, they have to call down fire from Baal. Well, you have to understand, once again, it's known that these pagan prophets of Baal used to rig the altar so that fire would start, so it would make it look like Baal had done this. But Elijah tells them, don't do that. You got to call it down. And so they're doing everything they can to bring down this fire from Baal and prove that Baal is great and they can't do it. There's no fire. And yet Baal is known as the weather god. He's the god of lightning. He's supposed to be able to strike with lightning and bring fire. He's known as the Lord of the fire. So uh, Elijah then soaks his altar full of water just to make the point, and he calls down, and the God of Israel sends the fire. Now, one little point here in this story, Elijah is taunting prophets of Baal. And he's saying, where's your God? Where's Baal? Is he out on a trip? Is he waiting? Is he this or that? Everything he mentioned is actually a part of the mythology of Baal. He knew exactly what he was talking about. This is what they said Baal did. And he's saying, what is he? He's off traveling. He's off this or that. He's not answering you. So when you understand this whole context of Baal, this story takes on a whole new level. Of meaning. Of course, uh, God brings down the fire, and then all of the prophets of Baal are killed. And uh, of course, remember, Jezebel's already killed all the prophets of the God of Israel. So now um, Elijah has, kills the prophets of Baal. It says that he then runs ahead of Ahab, and more than likely what this is saying, it doesn't mean that he was running away from Ahab. It means he was running before the royal chariot, and it's known that the king would always have men uh, and uh, carriers running ahead of the chariot. And so it could be that what this means is Elijah was running ahead of the chariot to announce what had just happened, and Ahab's change of heart. Um, this could be it. Um, then, of course, Ahab, uh, Elijah then keeps running away from Jezebel, and he ends up going all the way down. For 40 days, he goes down to Mount Horeb. And this is very, very interesting. Don't miss this, because Elijah is the only other person other than Moses that went up Mount Horeb and interacted with God. He's the only other person. And um, it's, it's very interesting to see this because later on in the New Testament, we have Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with Jesus in what's known as the Mount of Transfiguration. So uh, let me keep going, though. So after he leaves Mount Horeb, he comes, and uh, Elijah is following him now, wants to uh, replace him, because God's already told Elijah you are to anoint Elisha um, to carry on. Elijah knows his time is limited, and he, what does he do? He goes down to the Jordan River, the very place that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River to come in and take the land. He goes down there and he parts the Jordan River and walks across on dry ground. Once again, like Moses, he'd been up on Mount Horeb. Now he parts the water. He crosses on dry ground. And now he's going to be taken up to heaven. And where is he? But in the general vicinity of Mount Nebo, where Moses died and went to heaven. If Moses died, we don't know that. Nobody witnessed uh, him dying. So in this area, uh, we have this phenomenal story. And as I said, it's Moses and Elijah who then reappear uh, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And of course, because Elijah didn't die, The Jewish people believe in his return and see him as a forerunner. And Jesus actually, when Jesus was questioned about this, his disciples said, isn't Elijah supposed to come? And he said, yeah, Elijah came, referring to John the Baptist. And yes, Elijah will come and restore all things. So there seems to be an ongoing uh, purpose in the spirit of Elijah. Although we see a shadow of fulfillment, in John the Baptist. So then uh, Elijah has gone up to heaven. Uh, Elisha then takes over, and we have all of these miracle stories. It's interesting because we have twice as many miracle stories by Elisha as we did by Elijah. And of course, Elisha asked for the double anointing. So we have twice as many miracles. I don't know if that's uh, on purpose or not. We have an interesting story I'm going to end today on. And this is where Naaman, who was the head, the commander of the army of the Arameans. Now remember, at this point, we have somewhat friendly relations. There's a back and forth between Aram, the Arameans, and Israel. So the head of the army, Uh, Naaman, here, he's got some kind of skin disease. It's translated as leprosy. We don't know that it was actually leprosy, but some kind of skin disease. And he hears about this prophet in Israel that might be able to heal him. And so the king of Aram says, yeah, go. So Naaman comes down, and he comes to Elisha, and Elisha says, go down to the Jordan River. And Naaman's kind of put out by this. He's like, aren't you at least going to pray over me? I mean, I thought you'd do something and heal me. But he goes down to the Jordan River. He takes one look at it, and he says, this is where I'm going to be healed. I mean, we have better rivers in Damascus. And it's like this little punky, Po donkey thing. And so I bring that up. I always laugh at this story. When you go with me to Israel, one of the uh, most common reactions that everyone has when they see the Jordan River is this is the Jordan River because we have in our mind the Mississippi River, the Ohio River. We think it's some huge main tributary with flowing, clean, pure water and all these amazing things that took place in it. And it did used to be bigger than it is now, but now it is pretty muddy and small. And so even though it was bigger when Naaman was there, I I still laugh that he says, this is the river I'm supposed to be healed in. Of course, he obeyed the instructions. He's desperate. He gets in and he is healed uh, from the waters of the Jordan River. So... I hope that you're gonna be able to go with me, see the Jordan River, see Mount Carmel and the amazing view from there. So down in today's show notes, we have a link. I invite you to sign up for our tour interest list. And as soon as we have another tour with dates and a package, we'll come let you know about it. We'd love to have you go with us to Israel, see these places. When you see the geography, these stories even come more live than they do when we're discussing them here today and understanding that geographical and historical context. So I hope today helps you as you're reading through this week's reading and into next week. And uh, remember, hang in there. We're going to get through this together. I'm going to help you. And so I'll see you back here next week. And until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA. All rights reserved.